0: Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill Podcast. At Rock Hill, we're all about reaching people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Listen in as Pastor Matt Chappell teaches how God's Word applies to our everyday lives. Thanks for being here. You can go and find a seat. And uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter number four uh, is where we're going to be this morning and uh, last week we began a brand new collection of uh, sermons that we entitled the missing Peace." the missing peace, and uh, we've been uh, learning how we can discover peace in the midst of a world that seems to be uh, lacking peace and filled with chaos and uh, last week we uh, talked about how to have freedom from fear and How fear oftentimes will hold us captive? and hold us back, and uh, we talked last week about how we can have freedom from that fear, and uh, this week the title of my sermon is simply Mind Control, Mind Control, and I want to talk this morning for a few minutes about how we can get victory over our thoughts, and uh, win the battle that is in our mind, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter number four, and if you're there, would you say amen? Amen. Philippians chapter four, we'll start reading in verse number one. The Bible says this, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Jodius and I beseech Sintiki that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other uh, my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, everybody say the peace of God, the peace of God, God, which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Is anybody thankful for that truth this morning? The peace of God. Verse number eight. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Let's have a word of prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you, and uh, Lord, I pray that uh, for the next few minutes we'll be able to focus on your word, and God, I pray that we can understand how we can uh, have victory over the thoughts that so often consume our minds, and and, uh, God, how we can discover uh, the peace that only you can give. And God, if there's anybody here today that does not know you as their Savior, that does not know if they have a relationship with you, God, I pray that today could be the day of salvation for them, and they can discover truly a peace that passes all understanding. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. How many of you have ever been convinced of something? That wasn't actually true. Can I see your hands? You were convinced of something, and it wasn't actually true. Uh, The other day, uh, I was at home, and I heard my daughter Liv. She was having a minor meltdown, and uh, a minor meltdown like only a four-year-old girl can do. And I was kind of wondering what was going on. So I came downstairs, and and, uh, Liv was looking at her foot, and she was crying. And I went over there and I said, Liv, what's wrong? You know, I thought maybe she hurt her foot or something like that. And she was pointing at her toe. And I said, what's wrong? She couldn't really gather herself to tell me what was wrong uh, with her her toe. And she was kind of pointing at it. And finally she came and she said, my my toe, pointing at her pinky toe, she said, my toe won't lay flat. (laughs) And I was like your toe won't lay flat, and she's like, yeah, it's broken, it's crooked, it won't lay flat, and I said, no, Liv, that's okay, that's how God made our pinky toes, they're not supposed to to lay flat, but in her mind, there was a major problem, when in reality, everything was going to be okay. And uh, I think one of the most familiar examples of that is you may have heard the, uh, the original story of when the War of the Worlds made its original debut broadcast in the 1930s. And uh, Orson Welles had the War of the Worlds uh, story, and it was a fictional story about uh, alien invasion in New York City, and, and uh, it was going to make its debut on a Sunday evening in, in 1938. And uh, when uh, his show started, he started the show by saying this is a fictional drama and, and uh, what you're about to hear is fiction. Uh, but many people, because of another more popular show that was playing, they tuned in late. And so when they tuned into the show, all they heard was news reporters saying, New York City is under attack and everybody needs to run. And so there were uh, initial reports. There was a newspaper headline that said that panic took over the nation uh, because they thought that New York City was under attack. And, and since then, people said maybe it wasn't the nation, but for sure a few hundred, maybe thousand people thought that. There was literally um, some sort of invasion taking over New York City. And so they were fleeing the city and they were running into the police and asking for help because what they thought was seen in their actions. And what we think will inevitably be seen in what we do. See, the mind is an incredibly powerful thing. The mind is capable of both great good and also capable of great evil. And uh, Mark Twain, he said this, what a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long, the mill of his brain is grinding and, uh, and his thoughts, not those other things, are his history. And so the mind is an extremely powerful thing. And on a daily basis, we have this battle, this invisible war that's taking place within our minds. And we have these thoughts of temptation and these thoughts of doubt and these thoughts of anger and these thoughts of frustration and these thoughts of fear and these thoughts of anxiety that infiltrate our heart and our minds and they they kind of consume us and they take over. But for a Christian and for a follower of Jesus, it is imperative that we learn to get victory over this war and learn to win this invisible war because ultimately what gets into your mind will get you. What controls your mind will ultimately control you. And so your mind, your thoughts, can either be your greatest asset or it can be your greatest liability. And so we've got to learn, if we're going to discover the peace that only God can give, if we're going to discover this peace that passes all understanding, as Paul writes about in Philippians, And we're going to have to understand how to get victory in our thoughts, what we think about. The Bible says this in Isaiah chapter 26, verse number 3, "...thou wilt keep him in perfect peace." And this verse completely sums up my message this morning. We could read this verse and go home because it's exactly what I'm trying to preach today. That thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, watch this, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And so when our mind is focused on God, and when our thoughts are Christ-centered thoughts, then a byproduct of that will be God-given and God-guarded peace. He says that peace will keep you. It will guard you. 1 Peter 1 says this in verse number 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind... Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and, and hope to the end for grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I re- read that and you know, what does that mean? Gird up the loins of your mind. You know, what, what is what is Peter talking about here? Well, in ancient culture, in Jewish culture, the men would wear a tunic and and it was a robe that was long and whenever they wanted to run, they would struggle running because the tunic would get in the way and so they would gird up their loins and they would grab that tunic and they would tie it together so that they could high step it wherever they wanted to go and they could uh, run faster and they could travel farther. And uh, I even found on the internet this week that there is a a guide on how to gird up your loins okay so what would we do without the internet okay so there you go in case you're wondering okay take that away it's distracting and so here's the idea here's the idea to get prepared to get ready to get ready for movement to get ready for action get prepared so what is peter telling us hey prepare your mind train your thoughts And so when those thoughts of temptation come, we can get victory over temptation. When those thoughts of doubt come and those thoughts of fear and anxiety come, we can say, hey, not today, devil, because I've trained my thoughts. I've prepared my mind. I've girded up the loins of my mind. I'm ready for temptation. I'm ready for what the devil throws in my direction. And so we've got to learn to train our thoughts. We've got to learn to get the victory in our minds, this invisible war that's inevitably taking place on a daily basis. And we come to Philippians chapter number four, and, and uh, Paul is communicating this message to his friends at Philippi. In fact, uh, the Bible says this in Philippians chapter two, verse number five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's the goal, isn't it? to develop the mind of Christ, to have the mind of Christ. And so that's what Paul is, is teaching, and that's what Paul is trying to communicate to his friends at Philippi. And I think it'd be helpful for us this morning, before we get into our outline, to uh, kind of establish a little bit of context and, and how this letter came about. And uh, we know that in Acts chapter number 16, Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he was going out and starting new churches. And, and uh, he was uh, following the leading of the Holy Spirit to go to new cities and plant churches there. And, and he found himself in Europe, and he found himself in the city of Philippi through kind of uh, unexpected events and a lot of waiting seasons. He found himself in Philippi, and Paul did something unusual when he arrived in the city of Philippi. Typically, Paul would go, and you can study the book of Acts, and he would go to the city, and the first thing that he would do is he would go to the synagogue of the city. And there he would preach the gospel. He would preach Jesus in the synagogue. Well, when he comes to Philippi, he does not go to the synagogue because according to Jewish custom and Jewish rule, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men to run and operate a synagogue. And so apparently in Philippi, there was not enough Jewish men to run a synagogue. And so Paul did not go there. In fact, in Acts chapter number 16, Paul goes down to the riverbanks and he joins in with a ladies Bible study. And that is how the church at Philippi got started. Can I tell you today, don't despise the day of small beginnings. The world might look at Rock Hill and say, you're too small. It's a new church. You can't make an impact. But I would beg to differ because little is much when God is in it. And so, so Paul goes and, and he starts this, this church at Philippi. And uh, he loves these people. They're some of his greatest friends in all the world. And, uh, and uh, he, he, he holds them very dearly in his minds. And so later on in, in, in uh, the Bible, we learn in the book of Acts that Paul finds himself in prison in Rome. And uh, while he's there in Rome, the church of Philippi, who loves Paul, they, they sent a member from their church, and his name was Epaphroditus, and uh, they sent him to go and to deliver a financial gift and a gift to Paul while he was there at prison. And so Paul got this gift, and he was extremely thankful. And so he writes a letter back to the church to thank them for the gift that they sent with Epaphroditus, and to thank them and to encourage them in their faith. And as he does, and as he closes chapter number four, he gives us one of the most powerful examples in all of Scripture on how to win this war that takes place in our minds. And so what I'd like to do this morning, if you're taking notes, I want to give us four decisions that I believe that we need to make on a daily basis if we're going to win the war that takes place in our minds, if we're going to learn to control our minds. Number one, number one, eliminate unnecessary divisions. We've got to decide that we are going to eliminate unnecessary divisions. Would you notice what the Bible says in verse number one? Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved. Okay, so Paul, he really loves these people. Dearly beloved. And longed for my joy and crown. He's like, I'm proud of you guys. Stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And so we've got, again, Paul is writing to a group of believers. He's writing to a church that he really loves. He really cares about them. Okay, now notice verse number two. He says, I beseech, the word beseech in the Greek is perikaleo. It means to admonish or to exhort or to instruct. He's saying, I beseech iodias and I beseech, admonis syntiki, that they be of the same mind. Everybody say the same mind. The same mind, verse two, in the Lord. And so there were... Two women at the church at Philippi who were uh, apparently going through some sort of a conflict. They had some sort of dispute, probably a personal dispute, because if it were doctrinal, Paul probably would have corrected their doctrine. But he's, he's saying, hey, you need to be of the same mind in the Lord. And this was a major conflict. This was becoming problematic. This was disturbing the peace within the church. And so Paul feels it necessary to write this letter and to confront this division and this problem that was taking place. And, and I don't know about you, but how my mind works is I kind of just picture the scene. Paul uh, sends Epaphroditus back with a letter and they send it back to the church and uh, they're all gathered together, they're really excited and they're like, man, Paul wrote back to us, what is he gonna say? And they're reading all the first few chapters, like this is awesome. They get to chapter number four and he says, and I beseech Jodius and Sintiki, he just calls him out like that by name. He calls him out and I can imagine those women kind of like look down and everyone's kind of looking at him like judgmental, like, mm-hmm. like he puts you on blast, right? Like he just, he, he called you out. And Paul was saying, hey, you need to be of the same mind. You need to get on the same page. Let's eliminate these unnecessary divisions, and let's be on the same team. Let's develop this spirit of unity. But notice that he says, be of the same mind in the Lord. See, we're not going to always agree on everything, but we should agree on what's most important. I think it was Augustine who first said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. See, this was not some doctrinal issue that Paul had to correct. This was some preferential secondary issue that Paul said, hey, let's get on the same page. See, if we're having the same mind in the Lord, we're going to be on the same page. See, when we are focused on the mission, there is no time for division. If we're focused on the mission and the calling that God has for us, we don't have time for these secondary issues. We don't have time for all these preferential arguments. And Paul's saying, hey, we've got to get on the same page. John 17, verse number 11, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he prays this, and now I am no more in the world. But these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep me through thine own name, uh, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And I always find this verse so powerful and intriguing that Jesus, in his very last few hours on earth, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about us. And what is he praying for, our unity? That we would be one. One. 1 Peter 3.8, finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1.10, now I beseech you, again, there's that word beseech, I admonish you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, everybody say the same mind, and in the same judgment so time and time again throughout scripture paul said it peter said it jesus said it they were all praying for our unity that we would strive together for the faith of the gospel why so so much repetition why does the bible constantly talk about especially the new testament unity and striving together because the devil knows there is nothing more powerful than a unified church and so time and time again he says hey we got to get on the same page we, we, we've got to have the same mind in the Lord. Stop picking little fights and stop gossiping and stop spreading hurt and hate. Let's, let's have some unity about ourselves. Now, to do this, it's not always going to be easy because human nature, we're, we're proud and we don't like to admit it when we're wrong. We don't like to, to seek restoration. But I think that Paul gives us a couple clues on how we can have this kind of unity and how we can eliminate these unnecessary divisions. Notice what it says in verse number three. If you're there, would you say Amen. Verse 3 says this, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. Now, in the Greek, that is that is an interesting word. It actually means to be united. And uh, many people think that this is a... A, a, a person's name or some people think it's a nickname. Some people think this is referring to Epaphroditus or Timothy or Silas. And and uh, the idea is that we're not really sure who it is. But Paul says, Paul says, I entreat thee also true yoke fellow. He's saying, hey, I want you, whoever that is, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. He says, hey, true yoke fellow, whether that was Timothy, whether that was Silas, whether that was Epaphroditus, whoever it was, Paul is saying, you need to help these women uh, get on the same page. And a lot of times what happens is we, when we have conflict, what we need is a Third party, we need a mediator to come in, some counsel to come in and say, Hey, here's how you can have restoration. And uh, here's how you can get on the same page. And so, if we have some conflict and there's bitterness in our hearts and we're angry with someone, a lot of times we need an outside opinion to come in and to help us. And that's what Paul is saying. And he goes on in verse 3 and he says, With Clement also. Now, again, we don't know who this is. There's been a lot of speculation on who Clement is. Some people think it may have been Clement of Rome, but that's highly unlikely. And so we don't, we're not exactly sure who this Clement is. And with other, my fellow laborers with names uh, that are in the book of life. And so Paul says, hey, you that are spiritual, those names that are in the book of life, the ones that have labored with me in the gospel, help these women get on the same page. We need to help one another get on the same page. And we're not even sure who they are. And I think that's the point. Because this passage is not about recognition. It's about restoration. And see, if you truly want restoration, it's going to take some humility. It's going to take us humbling ourselves and putting our pride to the side and saying, you know, I'm going to eliminate these unnecessary divisions because if we want peace of mind, we have to be of the same mind in the Lord. And so we've got to, uh, we've got to have this same mind. Notice the second decision that I believe that we need to make if we're going to learn to control our minds. Number two this morning, rejoice. And be gentle. Rejoice and be gentle. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now I can imagine the reader is thinking, Paul that is impossible. (laughs) We cannot rejoice in the Lord all the time. We can always just be rejoicing and happy all the time. Like what are you talking about? Let's keep reading and see if that's really what Paul meant. Maybe he was meaning something else. Verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Yeah, that's what he meant. He said it again. Yeah, I think we need to keep on rejoicing, always rejoicing. We might think, well, Paul doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't understand my background. He doesn't understand the hurt that I'm carrying. And we have to remember that Paul knew all about suffering. He knew all about persecution. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was uh, cast out. He was in prison when he's writing this letter. And yet Paul says, rejoice always. See, Paul knew that our external circumstances do not have to dictate our internal emotions. William Barclay said this, It is the simple fact of human experience that someone living in the lap of luxury can be wretched and someone else who is in the depths of poverty can overflow with joy. Because you can't always choose your situation, but you can always choose your spirit. The Bible says this in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when, when you fall into diverse temptations or trials. Count it all joy, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And so how can we count it all joy when we're in the midst of trial, when we're in the midst of a hard season? And it's interesting that Paul says, count it all joy. That was a mathematical term. He was saying, consider the sum. Consider the product, what the answer is going to be. Look ahead. Count it all joy. When you do a math problem, you have the problem right in front of you, but you know that there's an answer coming if you work out the problem. And a lot of times what happens is when we're in a difficulty, when we're in a trial, we focus on the problem instead of the answer. We focus on the problem instead of counting it all joy, looking ahead and see what God can do in the midst of our problem. See, God always has a way of giving himself more glory, and sometimes that is through the route of our difficulties. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse number 11 says this, Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Now, when we're going through a difficult season, it doesn't doesn't feel joyous, right? We don't feel like smiling and rejoicing through certain seasons of life. But grievous, nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit. See, if we stay faithful and we determine, hey, no matter what situation I'm in, I can find reason to rejoice because I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. See, he is the object of our joy, the source of our joy, the reason for our joy is Jesus. It's not our circumstance. Psalm 32, verse number 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, and all ye that are upright in heart. And so we've got to make the decision and the determination to rejoice in the Lord. Notice verse number five. Then he says, Let your moderation. The word moderation is an interesting word in the Greek, IP case, and it means to be gentle, it means to be reasonable to be gentle, to be gracious, and he says, let your reasonableness, your gentleness be known unto all men, and the connotation there is outside of the church, (laughs) because a lot of times, Christians, you know, we can be kind of like a bull in a china shop, (laughs) kind of just run around, we make messes, and we pick fights, and we all these different things. And Paul's saying, hey, especially to the outside world, to all men, let's be reasonable. Let's be gentle. Let's rejoice, but make sure that we are being gentle and we're having the right spirit about ourselves. I love one definition of this word. It says this, not in a hurry to get into an argument. Not in a hurry to get into an argument. Titus 3, 2 says this, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. We are called to be reasonable, to be gentle. Uh, Puritan leader Jonathan Edwards, he said this. He called gentleness the Christian spirit, and he said, all who are truly godly and are real disciples of Christ will have a gentle spirit in them. Notice what he says in verse number five. He goes on. He says, let your gentleness be known unto all men. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. Why should we be gentle? Why should we be reasonable people and show grace and be loving and be kind? Why should we do that? Because God is near. The Lord is at hand. It's speaking of his presence, but I also believe it's speaking about his return. And just as Jesus came the first time at his first advent at Christmas, and why we celebrate Christmas, you can mark it down. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming to reward the righteous, and he's coming to call his people home. And so we've got to be prepared and living in anticipation that Jesus is coming again. The Lord is at hand, and so we need to remove unnecessary divisions. We've got to rejoice and be gentle. Notice number three. We've got to create stability through prayer. We've got to create stability through prayer. If you're with me, would you say amen? Amen. Notice verse number six. He says, be careful. The word is anxious. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. For nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto the Lord. Matthew chapter six, verse number twenty-five says, Jesus said this. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink; nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? See, Jesus was saying, Hey, we've got to stop being so uh, worried and filled with anxiety about the day-to-day things in life, and anxiety is a very real and common. Uh, illness in the United States. In fact, uh, according to some recent studies, anxiety is the number one mental health illness in the United States with over 40 million people annually struggling with anxiety. That's over 18% of the adult population, and more than $42 billion a year is spent uh, on anxiety. And so anxiety, life causes anxiety. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. And it's a very real thing that we struggle with, and worrying about our finances and worrying about our future and worrying about our relationships and worrying about our kids and how they're going to turn out. We have all these these worries and these anxieties. And I think it's interesting that in verse number six, the word anxious, the word careful, it actually means to be pulled in different directions. Daniel, can you come up here for a second? And Matt, would you mind coming up here for a second as well? And uh, I thought that that definition was uh, very interesting that when we are filled with anxiety and when we worry we're being pulled in different directions okay come come on right, right up here you guys match today's match made in heaven <laughs> Um, Matt, you grab that arm, I'm going to grab this arm, and see what happens is, I'm going to represent faith, and I'm going to represent trust, and and Matt, you're going to represent doubt and fear, and what happens is, is a lot of times, we want to trust in God, and we want to go this way, we know the direction that we need to take, but our fears are pulling us in the other direction, and we want to do what's right, we want to have a good attitude, and we want to rejoice always, and we want to be gentle, but over here, we have someone else that's pulling us, and eventually, we're being pulled apart, And so, thanks guys, and so what Paul says is that we can create stability through prayer because what happens is when we're filled with anxiety, not only are we losing peace, we're losing stability. We're being pulled apart. We're going back and forth. We're we're, we're wavering to and fro. We're vacillating between faith and fear, and we're going back and forth. And so Paul says if you want this stability, then develop a life of prayer. Notice what he says. He goes on in verse 6. Be careful. Be anxious for nothing. Don't don't worry. Don't be filled with anxiety. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. See, there is an anchor for our anxiety, and it's through a prayer life with Jesus Christ. That That's what Paul is saying. Romans 12, 2 says this. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will Of God, verse seven. He goes on. He says, and then and and then the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, beyond our comprehension. It is incomparable. It's a peace that we can't even comprehend. A peace that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts. Everybody say, keep, keep your hearts. It will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I love the word keep. It's the Greek word frueo, and it means to guard or protect by a military band. And so the peace of God will protect you when those thoughts, of, those thoughts of doubt and fear and anxiety are thrown in your direction and they're about to enter your mind. The peace of God can stand in the way and say, not today, access denied, I'm going to guard you, I'm going to protect you from these thoughts. How does that come? Through a life of prayer. Good. By supplication and thanksgiving, letting your requests be made known unto God. Romans 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so there is a real stability and a safety, a protection that comes by way of prayer. Notice number four this morning. Number four, it says this. Excuse me, number four, we've got to learn to refocus your thought process. It's a decision that we need to make on a daily basis to refocus, and readjust our thought patterns and our thought process. If you've got one more point in you, would you say amen? amen? Notice verse number eight. He says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, and of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. It's quite the list. In 1997, Apple Computer came out with uh, an extremely successful and well-known marketing campaign, and it was called Think Different. And this campaign uh, featured many men and women who have changed the world who were willing to think different. There was posters like this everywhere of, of people who represented this concept of thinking different. Many people believe that this ad campaign was in response to IBM. IBM and their slogan, which it still is today, which is just think. And Apple said, "Yeah, we're going to think, but we're going to think differently." And if there's any group of people in the history of the world that have been called to think differently, it's followers of Jesus. We are called to have a different mindset and a different way of thinking, a different different thought process and thought patterns in here. Paul gives us this powerful verse in verse number eight with all of these, the, the, these uh things to think on. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we might live in Fontana and Ontario and Rialto, San Bernardino, Rancho. We might live in these areas, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so we ought to think and set our affections on things above. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Bringing into captivity, into subjection, saying, I'm going to control my mind. I'm going to let the mind of Christ rule in my mind, in in my head. And so, if we're going to do this process, we're going to refocus our thinking, it's going to be a two-step process. First, we have to resist evil thoughts. We've got to resist evil evil thoughts of temptation and different things. We've got to resist that. But that's not enough. Because whenever we resist evil thoughts, there's a void, right? And so not only should we resist, but we should also replace those evil thoughts with what we find in verse number eight. Notice verse number eight again. Let's walk through these very quickly. He says, let's think on whatsoever things are true or sincere. The Bible says in John 17:17, thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. We know that the word of God is true what's true and sincere. Then he says, what's honest, that's honorable, that's dignified, whatever is noble, whatever is just, that's, that's being fair towards others, whatever is pure, whatever is morally uncontaminated. See, it's very hard to have a mind of peace when our minds are filled with profanity and pornography and wicked things of this world. We've got to think about things that are pure, things that are lovely, kindness, sympathy, and patience, good report, something that's worth talking about, some things just aren't worth talking about. Virtues and praise, if, there, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things. See, this is quite the list. And let's be honest, that's, that's gonna be difficult to think on those things all the time because when we're going down the freeway and someone cuts us off, I'm not thinking about what's a good report and what's lovely. <laughs> and so it's quite this list that we're to focus on, but I found it interesting that there's a very similar list in the Old Testament. That David makes and David says this in Psalm 19 verses 7 through 9 the law of the Lord is perfect speaking this, this th- these verses are all in context speaking of the Word of God the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple the statutes of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. and so here's the secret to refocusing our way of thinking. Focus and learn the Word of God, and focus on Scripture, and let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, and focus on the Word of God. And when we are focusing on the Word of God, a natural byproduct of that will be that our minds are thinking pure and lovely thoughts of good report, just, and and virtue, and praise, and all the rest so instead of making a big long list of everything that we've got to think about let's just focus and read the word of God and spend time in God's word and we will then think how God wants us to think Jerry Bridges said this God's word must be so strongly fixed in our minds that it becomes the dominant influence of our thoughts our attitudes and our actions one of the most effective ways of influencing our minds is through memorizing scripture see thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee was one more verse and we'll be done today verse number nine Those things, which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. So Paul's talking about here, his example. You've seen seen me live this way. You've seen this. I want you to think about these things, but then you've got to do something because right thinking will always lead to right living. And what we believe will always affect our behavior. And so he says, uh, do these things. And I love the end of verse number nine. Do this. And the God of peace shall be with you. Earlier, we learned in verse number seven that the peace of God will guard you. And now we see that the God of peace will guide us. Aren't you thankful today that not only can we experience the peace of God, but we can have a relationship with the very God of peace. Anybody thankful today that we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the personification of peace? The Bible says this in Colossians 120. Final verse this morning. And having made peace, everybody say peace having made peace through the blood of of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him i say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven see this verse is speaking about jesus christ and because jesus came to earth and lived a perfectly sinless life he has made peace possible last week we saw that there is peace on earth why was peace on earth because jesus came to earth and maybe you're sitting here today and you've never experienced a relationship with jesus and you're missing that true peace And I would say today can be the greatest day of your life because Jesus can give you that peace. You can have a relationship with Jesus because of his work on the cross, not because of we're good, the Bible says in Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, it's by his mercy that he saved us. And if we accept that free gift of salvation, if we accept that free gift of the gospel, that good news of Jesus Christ, we will then have a relationship with God and we will have the God of peace in our hearts. The only way to truly experience peace is in a relationship with Jesus. Thanks again for listening today. If this message was an encouragement to you, let us know. You can email us at hello at rockhill.church and keep up with all the latest news at rockhill.church or on Instagram at rockhillchurch.